0: My name is Reverend Tim Tom.
1: Actually, my name is Reverend Timothy Thomas. But my friends, and you are my friends, call me Reverend Tim Tom. Let's rap about what's on your mind. It's tough being a teen when this world can be so mean. No one takes you seriously. You say, who will understand me? When the world tells you you're nothing, just remember that you're something. It's tough being a teen. It's tough being a teen. So did you get through to him? Because, you know, the clay's drying. We're sort of in a hurry. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Wait and see? Okay, look, I took a quilt out of the oven and heated you a lasagna. No offense, but I expected some real results here. I know you're frustrated, Frankie. And you know why that is? Because it's hard being a parent. It's tough being mom and dad. It's hard being a parent. You wonder why kids do the things they do. Well, I said it before, and I'll say it once more. Remember, Jesus was a teenager, too. Mary wondered if he'd be okay, but he turned out to be a super nice guy in every way. He did, yeah. It's hard being a parent. It's the toughest job you'll ever do, and it's the most rewarding, too. Remember how they used to spit up on you? But well, don't worry, this'll pass, too. Yeah. Hard being a parent I'm sorry I don't want to ruin your Halloween maybe I should just skip the hayride and go home so you're in a rough patch you know who else hit a rough patch Jesus he was dead but then three days later he was back on his feet rocking it resurrection style my point is you never know what's right around the corner
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. This is one of my favorite weekends of the year, uh, confirmation weekend. And I I want us to praise God together for uh, three groups of people. Let me name them first, then we'll praise God for them. Number one, uh, the 74 eighth graders who are being confirmed here at Hope Ankeny. I think it's over 500 at all of the Hope campuses. We're praising God for that. We're praising God for the small group leaders who have walked with these students, some of them for the last uh, three years. It's an awesome commitment, and uh, we love the small group leaders that we have here in Power Life and and Ignition. And we're praising God for our staff here at Hope Ankeny that work primarily uh, with students Power Life and Ignition, and that's Emily and Tiffany and Boz. So let's praise God for those three groups of people. We are really, really uh, thankful for you. We praise God for you. And and my hope is, as a church, we would never take for granted the hundreds of middle school and high school kids who show up here every Wednesday night throughout the course of the school year. Uh, That's really amazing, And, and what's even more amazing, all kinds of reasons those students come, but one of the primary reasons is to grow in their faith. Uh, That clip that we just watched is from a TV show, a sitcom that was on ABC for nine seasons, so you know it's high-quality television. Uh, It's a show called The Middle. Our family loved that show. Uh, It's Mike and Frankie Heck. They're living uh, somewhere in Indiana. They have three uh, teenage kids, Axel and Sue and Brick. And then every once in a while, there's this character that shows up just out of the blue, uh, Reverend Tim Tom. Absolutely ridiculous caricature of a youth pastor, always there to offer wisdom and and words of advice, and often with his acoustic guitar uh, right at hand to sing those words of wisdom. As ridiculous as Reverend Tim Tom is, he's also right. It's tough being a teen, and it's hard being a parent, and you never know what's right around the corner. When I hear that phrase, you never know what's right around the corner, it makes me think of one of our values here at HOPE. Following Jesus is a growing experience. Healthy things grow. Now, we may not know exactly what's right around the corner, but we can know whatever it is that's around the corner is going to be an opportunity for us to grow. It might even be an opportunity for our faith to grow. So there's always a next step of faith, doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, We never arrive this side of heaven. The eighth graders, the step that they're taking today is, is to be confirmed, but every one of us in this room, you have a next step in your life of faith. And I'll tell you what it is. It's to read this verse with me. 2 Peter 1 verse 2, that's your next step. Let's read this out loud together. Uh, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. I do not need a show of hands, but I wonder if anyone in this room could use more grace and peace in their life. And I wonder if one of the reasons we don't experience more grace and peace in our life is because we stop growing and in particular our faith stops growing i don't remember how old i was when i first uh heard or saw this bridge illustration it it's an illustration used uh, it's based on this verse in romans romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death the free gift of god is eternal life through christ jesus our lord And so to illustrate the idea behind that verse, uh, someone in the church where I grew up would go to the chalkboard because we didn't have PowerPoint. We didn't even have dry erase board. We had chalkboard back in the day. And they would draw an illustration kind of like this. So here's people way over here. And then there's a very dangerous cliff. And then there's God way over there. And there's this distance between a sinful people and a holy God, a separation that's caused by sin. We just sang about it, how great the chasm that lied uh, between us. And so the question is, how do we get over to where God is. How do we get the, the life that God has for us when there's this separation? Well, in comes the cross, and the cross represents everything that God has done for us through uh, the person of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the, and the teaching of Jesus. And the, the cross bridges the gap. The, the cross is what connects sinful people with a holy God. And as I understood it early on in, in my life of faith, Jesus has done this for me, now it's up to me to take a next step of faith. And if I take enough steps, if I grow in my faith enough, eventually I'll end up on the other side where God is and where life is. And, and I think that, you know, it's a simple illustration, I don't remember if I was in elementary or middle school the first time I, I saw this or heard this, but I think it's a good starting point if you're new to the faith, if you're trying to figure out what are the main characters, what's the problem, where's the tension points, what's the Christian faith all about, this can help summarize some things really quickly for you and and get you started. But if your faith never grows beyond this simple understanding, I actually think this illustration can start to become detrimental to living a life of faith. And and let me see if I can explain uh, why I would say that. Uh, My wife, Wendy, Over the last three years, she's gone through a process of being trained to become a coach of something called the Enneagram, and the Enneagram, it's just a fancy word that means nine diagram, nine diagram. So here's the diagram with nine points, that's the Enneagram. The Enneagram has been around for centuries. We studied uh, the Enneagram in seminary, when I was in seminary, which was, well, it was centuries ago, it was in the (laughs) 1900s, yeah, Um, and... And part of the reason our seminary professors wanted us to take a look at the Enneagram is because they were raising up leaders of the church, pastors of the church, shepherds of the flock. And they wanted us to be good shepherds. And and one of the things that makes people, pastors, not good shepherds, dangerous shepherds, leading their flock off a cliff, is if they lack self-awareness. So a big part of what the Enneagram is about is helping you grow in self-awareness, helping you understand Why do you act? Why do you respond? Why do you believe the way that you believe when certain situations happen? Isn't it interesting? Uh, Those of you who are married, those of you who have, have families, like a situation can happen and everyone in the house can respond completely differently to the exact same set of circumstances. And part of that has to do with the Enneagram, what are our hidden motivations What are our underlying fears about life and how does that uh, play out? So nine types on the Enneagram. Type one is the reformer. These are people who are always looking to make things a little bit better. How do we improve things? Sometimes they get labeled perfectionists, but everyone thinks that's a little uh, too negative of a connotation, so we call them the reformers. Uh, Type two are helpers. Anytime there's a situation where somebody is in need, a type two, a helper, they show up and they're ready to offer whatever help, assistance, encouragement that might be necessary. You just go around the Enneagram. You got a number and a label to it. Over here, you got the enthusiast, type seven. These are people you want to invite to your party. They're the life of the party. They're always looking for fun and adventure. And so every individual person has an Enneagram type, but the people who study this thing, uh, they say... Also, you can take a group of people, a culture, a society, a country, and you can apply an Enneagram type to it. For example, at the top here, you got the number nine. Type nines are peacemakers. Uh, uh, They they are people who want the world to live together in perfect harmony. So they write Coca-Cola commercials right? Uh, 50 years ago. Um, They are conflict-avoidant. Can you think of a country that automatically pops into our mind when we think of... Peace, when we think of uh, people who don't want to have anything to do with other people's conflict. Switzerland, maybe, right? They're just neutral about everything. What type would American culture, American society be? People who study this thing say we're achievers, type three. America is a high-achieving country. And there's a lot about that that's really good, a lot about that that's great. You Think about where we live in America. We live in a high-achieving part of this country. And there's a lot about that that's really... I love being a pastor in a high-achieving community because uh, when we have these ideas and dreams and we think they're God-given and we say, here's the project or here's what we're going to do, this congregation loves it. You jump in with both feet. you got this get-or-done attitude. It's fantastic. Uh, m- maybe some of you are more familiar with uh, the Clifton Strengths Finders than you are with the Enneagram. Uh, we had to uh, go through the process of figuring out our goals Uh, Strengths in Strengths Finders several years ago as a staff development here at Hope. And I think there's like 34, 35 strengths. Uh, One of the strengths is Achiever. And so I want to read to you a little bit of the description of a person who has uh, the strength of Achiever. You feel as if each day starts at zero. By the day's end, you must achieve something tangible in order to feel good about yourself. By every day, you mean every single day, work days, weekends, and vacations. No matter how much you may feel you deserve a day of rest, if the day passes without some form of achievement, no matter how small, you will feel dissatisfied. You have an internal fire burning inside you. It pushes you to do more, to achieve more. I'm guessing there are some people in this room who have the strength of Achiever. Not everybody. I was really surprised when we did this uh, at Hope. I was surprised Achiever was one of my top five. It surprised me because I really like naps. Like I, All morning I'm thinking about my nap this afternoon, and I love my days off. But I, d- I started to think about it. I, on my day off, I respond to emails far too frequently. And on my days off, I'm thinking about what are the next things that we need to be do to be achieving things for the kingdom of God. So, part of what I want you to understand is you may not be an achiever, but the waters in which you swim, living here, you're swimming in achievement, high achievement waters. It impacts every part of your life. Uh, we have high achieving schools. The companies you work for, the businesses you work for, they're high achieving. This church is a high achieving church. And there's a lot about that that is really great and really awesome. And sometimes our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. It's really great to be high-achieving in a lot of places, but when it comes to living a life of faith, being high-achieving can actually um, it can be a challenge to following Jesus. Here's kind of what I mean. When I first saw this bridge illustration, the, the way I interpreted it, Okay, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. And now I just got to do the right thing. Now I just got to become as moral as I can possibly be. And I got to take all of these steps. And, and certainly I'm not doing enough, so I probably need to do more. I'm over here trying to get God's attention by being this dutiful, and diligent Christian. And maybe at some point God will smile at me and say, I can come over. But it's really up to me. Salvation rests on my shoulders. Let me read to you one more time this verse that we read together just a little bit ago. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. If your understanding of faith, your understanding of follow Jesus is I have to work really, really hard and do all the right things and probably do more right things. I have to somehow earn God's love, God's approval, I have to do enough so that God is at least not angry with me, that is never going to lead you to a life of grace and peace. In fact, it's going to lead you to the opposite of that kind of life. One of the things we ask our 8th graders to do as part of the confirmation process, we ask them to write a statement of faith. You're 8th graders now, you should have it all figured out. So what do you believe about God and why do you believe it? And uh, they write these down. On Wednesday, they uh, shared their faith statements in their small groups with their small group leaders and, and uh, their families. And then Emily uh, Beltram, who oversees everything, she sends me the PDF so I get to read through them. It's one of the best parts, reading through what, what are these kids, how are they thinking about God? So I want to share with you part of Ella Larson's faith statement. Ella writes, a popular quote is, life is a journey, not a race. As a middle schooler involved in many activities, sometimes each day feels like a race. Can I get a witness from the congregation? Um, Going from school to after-school sports to music lessons to dance and then homework, my schedule can be tough and demanding. In addition, many of my activities compete on some level. When at a soccer tournament or a dance competition, sometimes we win and sometimes we don't. At times, I've been disappointed that I didn't receive a good score or place in the top 10. It's fun to win, to celebrate with friends, and even receive a trophy or medal. However, what I have learned is that these victories are kind of hollow, and the feeling only lasts so long. Then I start preparing myself for the next tournament, and the race continues. And here's how Ella ends this part of her faith statement. I have learned that religion offers a different type of race. I've learned that religion offers a different type of race. Following Jesus is a different type of race. It's a kind of race that leads to a life of grace and peace in part because it's a different understanding of knowledge. That verse we've looked at a couple of different times, Peter says, "Grow in your knowledge of God." And in this part of the world, When we see the word knowledge, we almost immediately jump into our heads. We're talking about head knowledge. And if I'm going to grow in my knowledge of God, I've got to fill my head with all kinds of information that I can retain at a moment's notice. So I'm going to memorize the books of the Bible. I'm going to memorize Bible verses and uh, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. And maybe I should even try memorizing Luther's small catechism just for fun. And if I do all of that, that's how I'm going to grow in my knowledge of God. And for sure, that's part of the growth that our eighth grade students have had these last three years. There are things we wanted them to learn. And so we help them learn these important things that we think will actually be helpful to them as they live a life of faith into adulthood. But we want them to grow in a knowledge that's more than just head knowledge. So typically when we're teaching and preaching, Uh, From Scripture here at Hope, we use the New Living Translation of the Bible. This weekend, intentionally, uh, we asked our Bible readers to read a a paraphrase of the English translation of the Bible. It's a paraphrase called the Message. So here's verse 3 from the Message, and let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us by getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God, the best invitation we ever received. Verse 2, Peter says, grow in your knowledge of God. And then verse 3, he expands on, like, what does that actually look like? How does that play out in our life? And he says it happens by getting to know personally and intimately Jesus, the one who invited us to God. So, biblically speaking, knowledge getting to know God, it's more than just an academic or intellectual pursuit. That's part of it. Emily said last week when she was preaching, "Like we do not ask people to check their brains at the door when they come to worship at Hope. We want you to think. God gave you a brain for a reason. Worship the Lord with all of your mind, but understand faith is bigger than just that. Faith is a relational pursuit. The Old Testament Hebrew word for no is yada. Everybody say that, yada. yada. That's kind of fun, isn't it? Uh, some of you are Seinfeld fans. You remember the yada, yada, yada episode? It comes right from this word, seriously. Um, telling a long story, trying to make it short, fill in the blanks, you just say yada, yada, yada. You know, you know, you know. So, yada shows up uh, over 900 times in the Old Testament, real important Old Testament word. One of the first places it shows up is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And in the old King James version of the Bible, this is what we read. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Adam yadad Eve. Hopefully I don't need to explain to you this is more than an academic or intellectual knowing. There's a relational knowing that's happening here. And it's not just sexual. This is uh, in Amos... God is speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Amos. God says, You only have I known, you only have I Yadad of all the families of the earth. So Yadad is a knowing, but it's a very unique, uh, personal, intimate kind of relational knowing. Growing in our knowledge of God is growing in this kind of a relationship with God as much as it is growing in our sort of intellectual wisdom about God. So uh, Clark Smithy, one of the eighth graders who uh, was confirmed this weekend, in his statement of faith, he was talking about um, hearing missionaries to Africa talk about the work that they're doing. And here's part of what Clark writes. Uh, We were talking about love that day and how we need to share it with the world. Then they showed this video on how they were traveling to Africa to help children in need. At that moment, they started showing the barren wastelands and poorness of the country. I was shocked. I realized how lucky I was to have the privilege of being able to eat fresh food, drink clean water, and have medicine always available. From then on, I promised myself I would always treat those around me with love and kindness, knowing that some people might not be doing so well. Just like the ambassadors that showed love to those in Africa, I was going to do the same here in Iowa. And then here's how Clark finishes this part of his faith statement. During that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit go through me, knowing that I had been blessed by God. Yada, yada, yada. In that moment, Clark knew God personally and intimately, not not just in his head but deep in his spirit, deep in his soul. When when we talk about, is your faith growing? Part of what we're asking is, is is your relationship with Jesus different today than it was a year ago or five years ago? Do do you know, do you relate to Jesus, and do you relate to God in a different way today than you did a year ago or five years ago? Is your uh, experience of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, is that happening in a different way today than it did a year ago or five years ago. And if the answer to those questions is no, we would love to help change that and explore what would it look like for you to grow in this relational knowing of who God is in a personal and intimate way in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, in the way you do your job. When we celebrate confirmation, yes, there are things that we hope the kids know, but mostly, what we hope is happening is they are growing relationally closer to God all the time and, and have a desire to continue that process into high school and adulthood. Uh, technically, uh, liturgically speaking, confirmation is referred to as the rite of affirmation of baptism. The rite of affirmation of Baptism. We baptize infants here at Hope, and I want us to talk about that for just a little bit. Why do we do that? So um, we do it because Jesus commands us to baptize. In the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, one of the final things Jesus says before he ascends back to uh, heaven, he says, uh, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So uh, what is the Greek word? Uh, what's the literal definition of the Greek word that, that we uh, translate baptism? It literally means put them under till they bubble. Oh, good. At, at 8 o'clock, they're writing it down. Put them under till No, that's a joke. Uh, it does literally mean immerse immerse. Baptism means immerse. So here's a picture of a full immersion baptism, sometimes we call that. We don't do very many of those here uh, at Hope Ankeny, but we do at Hope in the places where they have uh, places. to. I guess we have a pond. Maybe we'll start doing that if it ever warms up. Uh, Mostly we do scoop and pour baptism. Uh, Does the Bible say one is better than the other, or here's specifically how you do? I like what Pastor Mike says. If you don't believe that God can fully baptize anyone with just a molecule of H2O, your God is too small. So whether it's full immersion, whether it's scoop and pour, there's the sacrament that involves water, a physical element in something profoundly spiritual and eternal that is happening. If baptism means to immerse, one of the ways to think about that is, yes, there's the sacrament of baptism, and then there's what Peter's talking about here. Immerse yourself in the things of God. Grow in the knowledge of God. Immerse yourself in the teachings of Jesus, the the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Let God's grace and peace cover you from head to toe. Immerse yourself in that. Immerse yourself in the life of God. Now, there are some people who read through the Bible, and they come to the conclusion we should only baptize people once they are old enough to make a statement of faith, like what the eighth graders are doing. If you can clearly articulate why you have faith in Jesus, why you believe Jesus is, is your Lord and Savior, then we can baptize you. But it's all about faith. You've got to have faith in order to be baptized. And infants clearly don't have faith, so why would we baptize infants? They can't write a, a statement of faith. So if that's you, if that's what you believe, we should only baptize people old enough to write a statement of faith, I'm so glad you're here because I want to introduce you to Count Zinzendorf. Now you're glad you came to church, aren't you? A little historical context. I'm not sure if Count Zinzendorf really looked like this or not. But, um, you know, if you go looking for historical evidence early on, right after Jesus' commandment to baptize people, um, you cannot find any historical evidence that the early church refused to baptize infants. You can find historical evidence that an adult would come to faith And the disciples, the apostles, would go with them back to their house, and the entire household would be baptized. And we know from sociological reality, those households were filled with infants all the way up to grandparents, great-grandparents, every kind of generation in in those households. Uh, We also know that through the first 1,500 years of church history, the church was baptizing infants. Then in 1517 comes the Reformation. Martin Luther, who is a, a Catholic priest, He saw some things, some beliefs and practices in the Catholic Church of his time that he thought, "Eh, I think we're getting off the tracks here a little bit. We need to reform some things. He was type one on the Enneagram, apparently. And he brought those um, suggestions to the church, and they didn't particularly like it, kicked him out of the church, and so the Protestant Reformation started. And one of the questions the first, I don't know, 100, 150 years of the Protestant Reformation What parts of Catholicism are we like, yep, absolutely? And what parts are we going to do maybe a little bit different? Hopefully, you notice when we recite the Apostles' Creed, the eighth graders did that uh, during confirmation. We talk about our belief in the holy Catholic Church, not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Catholic's just a fancy word that means universal. So, Catholics, uh, Assembly of God, Methodists, uh, Reformed, Lutherans, we're all on the same team because of our faith in our belief in God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. So one of the questions was, what about infant baptism? We're going to keep doing that in in the Protestant church. Now, while they're having these conversations, the Enlightenment starts to unfold. So uh, the Enlightenment starts because people realized, you know, the the people in authority who tell us what to believe, sometimes they're lying to us. (laughs) Sometimes they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, People like Copernicus and Galileo are using the scientific method, and they discover, oh, uh, earth is not the center of the universe. The sun does not revolve around the earth. And then there's all sorts of other things that the authority figures were saying this is true and everyone's like, I don't think so. And so uh, as they're trying to figure out what, what should we believe what is true, the, the trend, there was a shift during the enlightenment, the age of reason, reason, if you can prove it to be true, logically prove it or using the scientific method to prove it, then that's how you know what truth is. And that shift started to impact the church And I will say it reduced faith during that part of church history. Faith became, if you give intellectual assent to a series of propositional truths, if you say, yes, I believe this and this and this, A, B, C, D, if you believe the right things about the right kinds of things, then you can be a Christian, then you can be a person of faith. So for some of you, your experience of confirmation was all residue from the Enlightenment because you stood up in front of the church council you stood up in front of the whole congregation and you had to prove that you believed all the right things. And your palms are sweaty and, you know, it's just awful. Like trauma, trauma, trauma. It's all because they had reduced faith to just what do you know, what do you believe to be true in your head. Here comes Count Zinzendorf. And says, okay, this is all well and good and let's be careful in the church that we, we keep a consistent and biblical view of the importance of knowing. There's head knowledge, absolutely, but there's also a relational kind of knowing. Zinzendorf's one of the first guys to start using language that you hear us use around hope all the time. It's not so much a religion as it is a relationship. It comes from Zinzendorf. Zinzendorf says, you know, we're talking about, should we baptize infants? Do infants have faith? He says, if you're capable of relationship, you're capable of faith. Let me say that again. I really want you to wrestle with this one. What do you think? What do you believe? If you're capable of relationship, you're capable of faith. Is an infant capable of relationship? Next week is Mother's Day. I would strongly encourage you not to say to any mother, infants are incapable of relationship. Most moms I know will tell you, we were in relationship before the baby was even born. I've been doing baptisms here at Hope for over 15 years now, infant baptisms, and we baptize adults as well. I used to always say, as part of the baptism liturgy, three things are necessary for baptism, water, the word of God, and faith. And it doesn't matter what order they come in. And that was sort of my way of appeasing people who didn't think we should be doing infant baptism. Uh, We've got water, we've got the word, faith is going to come later, like when they're in eighth grade and they get confirmed. I don't say that anymore. And and part of the reason I don't say, I still think those three things are necessary for baptism. But I no longer believe infants do not have faith or are incapable of faith. Part of the reason is because of Count Zinzendorf and his explanation of what is faith really from a biblical standpoint. Part of the reason is uh, we adopted a little girl 11 years ago. And I I was thinking how silly it would be if we said, Saffron, you can live in our house, you can eat our food, uh, we'll clothe you, we'll educate you, and then when you're 13, 14, when you get to 8th grade, you can decide if you want to be a part of the family, and you can write out all the reasons why you want to be a part of the family, and if you say yes, then we'll adopt you. No, we adopt her right away. She belongs to the family right away. And then the third reason I no longer say infants do not have faith, is because pretty much every time we do a baptism of an infant around here, something like this happens. Take a look. We welcome you into the Lord's family. We receive you as a fellow member of the body of Christ, a child of the same Heavenly Father, and a worker with us in the kingdom of God. Can I borrow this little worker? A not so little. Hi, buddy. (laughs) Let's just go over here for a second, make sure everybody can get a good look. <laughs> First John chapter 3 verse 1 says, see what great love our Heavenly Father has for us, for you, yeah. <laughs> that we should be called children of God. You can go home. We'll see you next week. Uh, This is not an empty ritual, is it? God's doing something important and powerful deep in our spirits, reminding us who we are and how great God's love for each of us is. Praise God again for that love. Exactly what was going on in that moment in Trace's life, I have no idea. But I'm not going to tell you, he doesn't have faith. That he doesn't understand some relational reality uh, between him and his creator. Pretty much every time I do a baptism around here, I I think of that bridge illustration and I think of the way I used to interpret it. Now it's up to me. I gotta do everything right. I gotta serve and I gotta pray and I gotta study scripture and I gotta show up for worship and I gotta forgive. And these are all good and important things to do, but I don't do it to earn anything. As I've grown in my knowledge of God, I'm in complete agreement with Ella Larson. Faith is a different kind of race. Maybe we do not have to cross bridges to get to God. Maybe the bridge, the cross, is a reminder of God's promise to bring himself to us, to bring his life to us. Let's read this verse together, verse 4. It's on the screen, read it with me. We were also given absolutely terrific promises to pass on to you your tickets to participation in the life of God. Your faith is not built on hearing really good sermons or listening to really good worship music or being a a part of a church that's doing really good things and has really good programs and ministries and classes. Your faith is not built on your ability to achieve some kind of spiritual nirvana. Your faith is built on the promises of God. God has said yes to you, and God invites you to say yes to God. And not a once and done kind of thing, but every moment, this moment, everyone in this room can say yes to God right now. Why wouldn't you? Why would you wait? Say yes to God, because when you say yes to God, God's spirit will confirm with your spirit that you are a child of God. And you will know, not just in a head kind of knowledge, but you will know deep in your spirit there is a God and that God loves you. We remember that love when we come to the Lord's table. And we remember it was the night he was betrayed. Jesus was having a meal with his closest friends. He took some bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant and my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Let's stand. And let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. want to invite the communion servers to come forward at this time. As they're coming forward, some instructions for you. Uh, how do we do communion here at Hope? The ushers will tell you when it's time for your row to come forward. Uh, we'll come through these kind of side aisles. If you remember, try to keep two lines as you go through. Uh, Uh, those aisles, and that'll help speed the process up a little bit. Not that we're trying to speed it up, but we do have an 11 o'clock service. Um, We'll give you a wafer of bread and then a cup of juice. And if you're in need of an allergy-free or gluten-free station, that's available right here directly in front of me. Just make your way to that. Sometimes people wonder, am I really welcome at the Lord's table? And the answer is absolutely yes. God says yes to you. God wants you to Participate in the life of God and extends that invitation to you freely over and over again. So come and eat, all is prepared.